Welcome to EdMed Talks. I'm Dr. Adam DeVico, an educator. And I'm Dr. Jacqueline DeVico, a pediatrician. And welcome to season two, episode nine, where we're going to talk about a really, really important, but oftentimes confused topic, IEPs. And to do that, we have a special guest with us today, and I'd like to introduce everyone to a person that I've known for uh, several years now through uh, teacher conferences and, of course, social media as well, and she, her name is Rebecca Poe. Rebecca, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I think it's appropriate if uh, you want to start off by just telling everyone a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am a former special education teacher. I am also the parent of a child with an IEP myself. I was in the classroom for 12 years. I'm now working on a book about inclusive education practices and speaking at different conferences to hopefully help some teachers figure out best inclusive practices for their students with IEPs in the general education classroom. So Rebecca, can you kind of just tell us the basics of what exactly is an IEP and a little bit about what it's not? (laughs) So an IEP, IEP is actually an acronym. It stands for Individualized Education Plan. An IEP is not a label for a child. It's not an excuse for a child. An IEP ensures that that student is going to get every single thing they need instructionally, um, classroom environment-wise, that they need to be successful in the classroom and throughout their education process. And uh, just, you know, for those listening, a little bit of the history lesson behind it is uh, this was a part of the IDEA Act uh, many decades ago, and and this allowed students to have equitable access to learning and instruction in the classroom. Because prior to that, uh, students who may have had a learning disability or cognitive disability would not have been given any type of accommodations or modifications to their work or their assessments or anything like that. And so uh, we had a very uneven playing field. So the idea of an IEP uh, definitely helped um, even the playing field a little bit. Absolutely. And that's really what it's for. The accommodations in an IEP and the IEP goals, they're, they're to help like you said, level the playing field for a student. They're helping the student get what they need in order to be able to participate in that curriculum and in that classroom. It's not making it easier. It's not cheating. It's none of those things. It's simply giving the students the tools they need to be successful. So what makes up an IEP? Can you talk about the components of one? So the IEP has several different parts. We're going to start with, I always want to start with strengths, you know, student strengths. What is little Johnny or little Susie, you know, really good at? What do they enjoy? We have parent involvement, student involvement. What, what is the student motivated by? Then we move into the academic needs or the functional needs for the student. And that's really where we start outlining, you know, this student is having a difficult time with math computation. What are some things that the student might need in order to be more successful in that area. And then we come up with a goal for that need, accommodations to help them meet that goal in that need. So everything ties back into the the student's current level of performance. And, uh, you know, I I just thought of something because, you know, a lot of how you get to this point is going to differ based on where you live. Uh, So uh, you're in Alabama, I think, right? I am. Yeah. And so, and we're in North Carolina 
And so I know recently North Carolina actually shifted the way that a student can kind of qualify for an IEP. So we used to use the discrepancy model, which shows the difference between their cognitive and uh, performance based tests. And so, you know, there were actual tests that could show this discrepancy, but we've moved away from that in North Carolina. We now use the MTSS model where we're going through kind of uh, different tiered interventions, eventually seeing, uh, do these interventions work? Uh, and after a certain point, we say, all right, we've tried all these interventions through core instruction, uh, supplemental instruction, intensive in, uh, intervention. And then we say, all right, this child may need uh, differentiated uh, curriculum. What are they doing in Alabama right now? So it's a little bit of both. And honestly, the MTSS process is something that is typically done before that eligibility is going to be discussed. I know for the district that I worked in, we had to have six to nine weeks of documentation of all of those tiers of interventions to prove that everything that needed to be done for the student in the classroom was being done and there still was insufficient progress being made through that curriculum. And then at that point, once the IEP team would meet, decide whether or not to accept the referral for testing, depending on what area of eligibility the student is going to be qualifying under, which whichever eligibility category we're looking at for that student, there are different tests that we would do for that. So depending on the category of disability, for example, a student with a that we're testing for a specific learning disability, we would look at that discrepancy model and say, okay, if the IQ is a certain number and the achievement is another number and that point difference is 16 points or greater, then yes, that student has a specific learning disability. So it really goes hand in hand. You have to be able to show that the traditional interventions that the classroom teacher has been doing are not enough but that also there is eligibility under IDEA with one of those eligibility categories, because there's only so many disabilities that qualify under IDEA. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So we've had, Jacqueline and I have had podcasts, some of you uh, listening right now may have listened to uh, our previous one on dyslexia. We've done one on autism. And so we have mentioned the word IEP a lot, and sometimes uh, parents will hear kind of buzzwords in their circle, social circles, and automatically think, oh, my child must be able to get an IEP because of that. But like you said, not every disability, not every uh, challenge that a student faces automatically just equates to an IEP. Exactly. So yeah. you know, we have to make sure that the student has a disability under IDEA, but also that that disability is negatively impacting their ability to progress through the general education curriculum. And we also have to show that they require specially designed instruction in order to succeed and make progress. So what should parents be looking for if they think, oh, potentially my child may need an IEP? Like what would a parent notice about the school? What communication would they receive that would kind of lead them in so first off, if a parent ever has the concern, I think my child might need an IEP, part of their rights at, under IDEA as a parent is they can request a referral meeting. And the parent referral surpasses, bypasses almost everything else. Um, 
the school will have to meet for that referral. That does not guarantee that the student will be accepted for testing. And that also does not guarantee that they will be found eligible. However, if a parent is concerned, that is well within the parent's right to do so. Now, if they're thinking, I kind of want to hold off and see like different things they can be looking for, check those progress reports. You know, is everything kind of staying stagnant? Are we not seeing any forward growth? Are we seeing a decrease in ability? Or, you know, as, as the curriculum starts to get harder, a lot of times we see a big jump between second and third grade, because in second grade, students are still learning to read. And by third grade, they've swapped to reading to learn. So you start seeing, oh, this student is having a much more difficult time in this type of of subject than they were. So let's, let's track that. Let's do some interventions in the classroom. And then as the parent, just stay in, stay in contact with the teacher, be a partner in the classroom with the teacher and, you know, check in on your student because teachers, as much as, as much as we love your kiddos, you're the one that they're with the majority of, of the time. You're the one who knows them best. And often I rely on parent input when I'm making determinations. Um, uh, let's stick with the parent piece for a little bit and say, you know, I'm a parent, I'm concerned. I go into meet with the teacher. Teacher says, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're doing interventions, but what kind of questions can a parent ask from there? Because uh, in my experience, interventions are done about a million different ways and some are effective, some are not. Mm-hmm. Some are being done, some are not. Uh, in your experience, what kind of questions could a parent ask from there to make sure that their child is truly getting the interventions that they need that could determine whether or not they are making growth or not in the once they're pre- being progress monitored? Yeah, one of the first questions I would ask is whether or not the student is participating in a research-based program. Um, that's going to be one that has been vetted that has kind of withstood the test of time a little bit it's it's you know current it's utilizing best practices it's not just something that the teacher found on the internet printed off that morning and we're calling it small group intervention you know it needs to be rigorous it needs to be a system and a program you need to have regular progress monitoring happening. So you should be able to request work samples. You should be able to request, hey, can I see that data? Can I see the words that they weren't able to read? Can I see the math equations that they weren't able to solve? They should have all of that. And again, that's well within your right as a parent to request. And let me, uh, I, I threw a word out. We both said it, but I think we should clarify progress monitoring. So if you're not familiar with that, progress monitoring is a, uh, depend on kind of the frequency that they're give, getting interventions, but between one and two weeks, every one or two weeks where a child is uh, taking a very brief, usually it could be anything from a minute to five minutes, very brief type of assessment that just measures like, hey, are we making progress with this specific skill? And like Rebecca said, a research-based monitoring system. 
Uh, so in reading, for example, it might be something like reading fluency. And so there might be a reading passage that the student gets a minute to read and they measure how many words can they read accurately in a minute. So that's a just one example of many, but I just wanted to clarify about uh, what progress monitoring is. So let's say student gets an IEP, all right? So they, they get an IEP, they are in special education now, uh, they're turned over to, to you as a special education teacher. What does that look like? especially for a parent that might be new to this entire process. So for, for a parent coming in, your child is just qualified for special education. We're going to start working on that IEP. For me, the first thing I always did, I sent home a parent or family input survey. I want to know everything you know about your child. What makes them tick? What do they like? What do they not like? What motivates them? What subjects do they prefer? I'm also going to ask the student those same types of questions, and I'm going to ask their general education teacher those same questions. That's really going to help me kind of guide the IEP, figure out what kind of accommodations I'm going to be putting in there. And then from, from that point, everything that we do as a special education team, as an IEP team, the parent is a part of. And that's in the special education rights, we talk about parental involvement. That's one of the keys of IDEA is parental involvement. And nothing can really happen without parent say so. So that could be if we're considering a change of placement for a student who might've been in a general education classroom, but we're wondering if possibly um, time in a smaller setting for, for more of the day would be beneficial for that student. You should be, <laughs> I have to say should, because I, I can't speak for every teacher, but you should be guided through all of those steps. Ask all of the questions. If you're unsure about something, bring that up because you, it's better to learn than to wonder. So, where is the, you know, as Jacqueline, uh, her position as a pediatrician, where does the child's doctor come into play in this kind of big picture? Because I know, I'm sure Jacqueline could speak to this. She gets asked all the time, hey, can my child have an IEP? You know, on her well child visit, like, you know. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I fill out a lot of school forms, especially kids transitioning into kindergarten, you know, and I will, I'll sometimes have kids who have received therapies, whether through the early intervention process or through the preschool intake team, or I'll have parents who are just concerned about their child's ability from a behavior standpoint or from an academic standpoint in kind of preschool, or the child's never been in any kind of preschool and parents have those concerns. And so often they'll first come to their pediatrician. And I feel like sometimes it's almost this moment where I have to say, you know, guys, sorry, this really isn't my lane. I can mention diagnoses that you have, but I cannot it required that anybody give you an IEP. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what role their child's pediatrician plays in this. Right. Yeah. I've had, I've had parents, I've had other teachers who have come to me and said, oh, this, this doctor said they have this diagnosis. They need an IEP. Well, a diagnosis is only part of the eligibility process. A student can have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism or something, something else, any, any sort of medical diagnosis, that's not a golden ticket to getting an IEP because of that eligibility process that we talked about. We still have to show 
that that disability is negatively impacting their progression in the classroom and that they have to be receiving specially designed instruction in order to make the progress that they need. And that I think is a common thing that people don't quite understand because we think, oh, well, individuals with disabilities education act, that this is a disability. Yes, but there's so much more that goes into it. So if you have a student with a diagnosis, but perhaps they don't require specially designed instruction, another option could be a 504, which is it's called a 504 because it's part, it's section 504 of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that is similar to an IEP in that students can receive accommodations based on their diagnosis, but it will not be providing the specially designed instruction that an IEP would require. And that also is something that a doctor cannot request themselves, they can, I guess, help parents request an evaluation for, but a doctor cannot say, oh, this child needs a 504 plan. Correct. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So pretty much all a pediatrician or physician can do is kind of write a letter kind of verifying this child was, we'll say, diagnosed with ADHD this point in time, you know, can say if they're on medication or not. And that's kind of it, right? (laughs) Yeah. And we'll we'll take that letter from the pediatrician. It goes into that eligibility file and it's, you know, it's definitely discussed at the referral meeting to determine whether or not we're going to be accepting a student for testing. Um, And then again, if, you know, the student is tested and qualifies when we're looking at eligibility categories and we have a doctor's note that says this child has ADHD, then that might be the eligibility category that they fall under because sometimes students can fall into two different categories. I've seen multiple times students with ADHD also have a specific learning disability. Mm -hmm. And we have to, as the IEP team, which includes the parent, determine which of those disabilities is really the one that is impacting them the most educationally. I want to extract a, a phrase you just used, the IEP team. And I think that's a really important phrase for everyone to understand, because if you're new as a parent to this process, this is not just you and the special education teacher. This is a team that includes, yes, the special education teacher, but also regular education teacher, uh, someone called the LEA, which is the local education agency representative. So oftentimes this is going to either be the principal or the assistant principal, uh, it is a team. Many people bring in uh, other experts. So if you have a student who is blind or deaf, for instance, you might have an auditory specialist or a uh, visually impaired specialist. So the teams can grow as you go along. Another fact for parents to know is that you are allowed to welcome and introduce and bring in other people that have a say or impact on that child's life and may be able to contribute to the conversation. And I know as a principal over the years, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of uh, IEP meetings, and I've seen a lot of uh, guests brought to the table. And so it truly is a team. Uh, What's your experience with that, Rebecca? So I've had IEP meetings where it has been me as a special education teacher with the general education teacher, the principal and the parent, just the four of us. I've had 
meetings where it's been the four of us plus an occupational therapist, physical therapist, speech language pathologist. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I say the more the merrier because each of those people have something to bring to the table that's going to benefit that student. The speech language pathologist, the SLP, they're going to be able to speak more to the language and communication needs of the student than I am. Even if, you know, I'm the special education teacher and I'm the case manager, that SLP is still going to have that knowledge that I need to write that IEP. So the more information I can get from all of the team members, the better. Agreed. Yes, I think I agree. I, I think more the merrier. Uh, the meetings get long sometimes. They do. They do. <laughs> we've, got, we've got to have a lunch break in there once in a while. I used, to, I used to have a coffee pot in my room and we would just keep it brewing and just sit there till it was all done. And yeah, that was that was our day. Yes, I've been in those before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking in, in my experiences, I'm thinking about just parents over the years who they're nervous. You know, it's a new world for some, you know, they, they think it's uh, a a label that's going to be on their child. They're scared. They're nervous. They're upset. They think there's something wrong with what they did as a parent. How have you comforted or relieved or, you know, helped parents understand that this is, this is not a bad thing. This is helping your child. Uh, It's also not forever, you know, like, IEPs are not a permanent thing. How have you worked that over the years? So I've I've had parents who have been very nervous. You know, they feel like, you know, oh, I've I've failed my child because they need an IEP. And to those parents, I say you are not failing your right now, you're doing the opposite of failing them. You're making sure that your student is getting every single opportunity to be their personal best. And that is something worth applauding. Because a lot of parents, you know, they don't they don't want to go through that because it, it, it can be difficult. And, you know, society in the past has kind of brought on a stigma about being involved in special education. But it's something that if a student needs it in order to be successful, then let's let's provide that for them. Let's give them every opportunity So a parent coming into my classroom for the first time for that first IEP meeting, we're going to spend a lot of time at the beginning making sure that parent feels comfortable, making sure they understand that, like you said, this is not permanent. This is not something that they might have for the rest of their student careers. And I mean, they, they could, but I've had several students who have tested out of special education, who have gone on to disqualify down the road for this, that, or the other reason. And some, some students can, and some students are going to need that support throughout their, throughout their career. The most important thing is that the student is getting the help that they need. You know, special education is a tool. It's something that we provide the student in order to make sure that they are being their best self, being their best student. And Rebecca, earlier on, you mentioned with all of your experience with this, you're writing a book. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Is it geared toward teachers or parents and what's what's in it? So my book is called Blueprint for Inclusion, and it is actually written for general education teachers 
who are teaching students with IEPs in the general education classroom. I think there's a lot of information about there for special education teachers who are teaching students with high needs in the special education classroom for the majority of the day. But statistically, most of the students in special education are going to be in those gen ed classrooms. They're going to be with their non-disabled peers with a general education teacher the majority of the day. And those teachers are the are the ones on the front lines. They're the ones who are providing those tiered interventions day in and day out. But there's not a lot of material for them when it comes to what IDEA is, what all the parts of an IEP are, what is the eligibility process like? And then we go even farther into it. What kind of accommodations do these students need? What kind of differentiation can I provide in the classroom? Because I think when we hear differentiation, we think, oh, I've got to change my entire lesson plan. And that's not the case. There's little things you can do. So this book is for anyone who is looking for a little bit more information about the special education process and how to work with students who have qualified. That's, I think that's great. As a, so as a general pediatrician, when I have books or resources that are written by the specialists geared towards the generalists, I find them immensely helpful. And so I think that's fantastic what you're doing, because while I'm in the medical field, I have similar resources and I find those textbooks and general books are much more helpful to me than ones that are specifically written for those specialists. Yeah. And Rebecca, I can't tell you how important this kind of book is, because like as a person that went through a very general education, elementary education preparation program, you know, you maybe, maybe if you're lucky, get a semester of special education and many programs don't even have that. Right. And I think back to my teaching career and there wasn't a single year that went by where I didn't have a special education student in my general education classroom. As a principal, there wasn't a day that went by where I didn't have some type of special education situation arise that I needed to know more. I needed to know it. As a principal, there's two rules that you do. There are two things you do not mess up, finance and special education. And thank (laughs) goodness, thank goodness I had an assistant principal who was a former special education teacher and uh, coordinator because she saved my butt a thousand times. I would have been fired probably on week two. So you know, the, the learning process for general education administrators, I think that's so important. So I'm super excited about that book. So as we wrap up here, any final thoughts or words or encouragement or anything that you want to add for uh, what you do and, you know, just the teachers that are out there listening and parents out there listening right now. Just think for, for any teacher who's listening, any parent who's listening, the special education teacher, the general education teacher, and the parent that is your, that's your team. If you have a student involved in special education, those three people, you, um, if you're the parent, if you're the gen ed teacher, if you're the special education teacher, the three of you have to come together in order to make this work for the student. And the more input that you give as the parent or as the gen ed teacher, the more in-depth that IEP is going to be able to be, the more services your student is going to be able to receive based on their level of need. Really just the three of you working together, more than any accommodation that I could give, that's 
a higher indicator of success. That's awesome. Great advice there. Well, thank you for sharing uh, such really, really great information tonight. I know everyone listening is going to be very grateful uh, for learning more about this process because it's confusing. It's intense. It's it is. Thick, it is. It's it's a it's a big textbook of knowledge to learn, and it's uh, it's important to know though. So thank you again, and uh, Jacqueline, you want to wrap us up like always. <laughs> So as we end every podcast, I always remind our parents, you know your child best. There's no such thing as the perfect parent. However, you can be the perfect parent for your child.